Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless. So while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program broadcast. My name is Steve Lassard and I'll be your host for this session. Tonight we are privileged to have Dan Siegel joining us. Dan is broadcasting live from Esalen, while I and the entire SoundStrew team are all here in our Boulder studio. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute and has published extensively for both professional and lay audiences. His books include The Developing Mind, Brainstorm, and The Yes Brain, published in 2018. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me, and welcome, everyone. It's an honor to be here with all of you, and the concept of speaking about awareness, of course, is central to what's been happening here, where I am at the Esalen Institute. For 57 years, they've been trying to wake people up to the consensus view that sometimes constrict us. And of course, what you've learned from Tara and from Jack are ways for thousands of years that people have been trying to wake up from the kind of sleepiness that human life can sometimes create. So in this brief amount of time, what I'd like to do is just go over some fundamental concepts, primarily from fields of science, that help illuminate the nature of being aware and hopefully will be relevant to the work you're doing, not just as mindfulness practitioners in the world, but also as teachers of mindfulness. And so we'll start with a basic concept of the mind, since it's the first part of the term mindfulness, and just share a view with you that you may know this, that the mind is actually a term that rarely is defined. It's often described, but saying what it actually is, is actually hardly ever done. So of course, people in the sciences have said mental life is something about emotions and thoughts and memories and what initiates behaviors. Absolutely, there are descriptions like that that are very interesting and very useful. But when it comes to actually saying what an emotion or a thought or a memory actually is, short of saying what Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago, that these mental activities are simply brain activity, there's actually not a common shared view of what this mind stuff actually is. So the first thing we'll begin with is the field I work in called interpersonal neurobiology is where we take all the different fields of science and weave them together into one and ask questions like, what is the mind actually? Can you define it? Even if philosophers of mind say you shouldn't, 
could you do that? And if you did, would it have any kind of usefulness in what we do as a humanity on the planet? Could it bring more well-being? Could it reduce suffering? Could it help us understand things like climate change and what's called the Anthropocene era, where humanity is changing the very climate that we have surrounding our planet? So what I want to do with you then is take you through some take-home points. And because I always forget to do this, I'm going to just get it off my mind once we'll define what that is soon, um, so you can know. But if you wanted to read more about this, there's an interpersonal neurobiology series for professionals that I've overseen the publication of as the founding editor. We have over 70 textbooks available to you if you want to get more deeply into the science. So, so that's there, and I won't be referring to this scientific and study in that, but just know that there's a tremendous amount of science. And what we do in interpersonal neurobiology is we take all the fields and find a common framework between, for example, mathematics and physics, linking them with chemistry and biology, psychology and linguistics, sociology, anthropology, and everything in between. So we look deeply, of course, at neuroscience, but our view, and here's the first take-home point, is that the mind is not the same as brain activity, that it includes it but isn't limited to it. And we see the mind as having four facets, and these can be described as subjective experience. So when you teach your students of mindfulness, for example, to pay attention to the sensation of breath and fill awareness with the in-breath, when the out-breath and the in-breath and the out-breath and the in-breath come, and when they notice a distraction, to let the distraction go and return to the sensation of the breath. The sensation has a subjective quality to it. And no matter where we ultimately figure out subjective experience, what's called first-person experience sometimes is coming from, of course it's going to involve the brain, but there's reason to believe it is not limited to the skull. So let's just call it fully embodied. And when we do a body scan, for example, in mindfulness practices, you're asking that something, which we'll define in just a moment, is arising from the whole body. And that something has an awareness that you can have or not, doesn't have to be an awareness, but when it is, then we have a second facet of mind called consciousness. So consciousness has both being aware and it has that which you're aware of. And for me, being relatively new to the field of mindfulness, when I first started working extensively with Jack Cornfield as co-teachers, what I found as someone not with a background in uh, Buddhist practice or any spiritual tradition, but just as a scientist and a psychotherapist, what I found so interesting about what Jack was teaching was the notion, first of all, that you could distinguish the knowings from the known, which is part of a practice we'll talk about soon that I had been doing years earlier called the Wheel of Awareness, where you could separate the knowing in a hub of this metaphoric wheel from the knowns on the rim. So when we get into the wheel of awareness, you'll see that consciousness could be differentiated and linked, which is a process called integration we'll get into very soon. So you have subjective experience, you have consciousness, and even if they were to be 100% dependent on the brain, it doesn't make them the same as the brain. Important, important point. Number three, we have information processing that could include awareness or it could be without awareness. So we need to include that in what we mean by the mind. And philosophers have really very usefully come up with four E's 
of this information processing, sometimes called cognition. One is that it is embodied and that we literally embody cognition. The second is that it's enacted. So we say things like, I'm going to grasp something. I'm going to understand something. You're standing under. So we enact things, even when you study, for example, how physicists come up with their incredibly fascinating abstract ideas, they're enacting them in all sorts of movements that you see. The third E is that information processing is extended beyond the body, certainly beyond the brain. For example, the computer you may be using to watch me speak and hear me speak is an extended form of information processing. And then we have the fourth E, which is embedded. It's embedded in our culture. So you are working with these three facets of mind for sure, but there's a fourth facet that I think really helps us address some scientific views of suffering that you may find parallel with Tara and Brock, Tara Brock and Jack have taught you. And in their teachings, of course, there's the issue that human life is full of pain, but suffering in a way is optional. That is, we can learn practices to reduce suffering. And what I'm going to describe to you now is a way of scientifically understanding some of that. And that's a fourth facet of mind. So the first was subjective experience. The second is consciousness. The third is information processing. And a fourth facet of mind actually goes beyond those descriptions of mental processes that include, of course, emotions and thoughts. And so I want to be really clear, when you hear me using the term mind, I in no way mean intellect alone, right? So some people say mind versus heart. In our view, we would never use a phrase like that because anything that was the heart felt sense or the gut felt sense or emotions, the oomph of life would be considered under the general term mind because it's subjective experience. It's first person direct experience. It's a prime. It's not reducible to anything else. You know, and it's that way, that's what we mean by mind. So we would never say mind versus heart. We might say head versus heart. That you could say, you know, but we would never pit the mind against a part of itself, which is the heart. Relationships are also a part of what the mind is about. And so as an attachment researcher, when I study parent-child relationships, for me, relationality was a crucial way of understanding mental life. So then the question I'll ask you is, what could be both within the brain and the body as a whole, but also go beyond the skull and skin and be in the betweenness of our lives with each other that we call our relatedness, our relationship to each other, like right now, me with you, or our relationship with the planet. So when I stare out here at the Pacific Ocean and think about the warming climate that is making the fish unavailable, so the sea lions are now starving and coming up on shore, and we see this here in Northern California. You know, what do we do with our human influence on the ecosystem that is also a part of our mind, that we are a part of our relationship to the sea, to the sea lions, to the atmosphere that surrounds us that we all share. So what would be the thing that would be both within and between? And that essence would be energy. Energy sometimes comes in various forms that in their certain formation stand for something. So we call that information. So the basic unit of the system of mind I'm going to propose to you is energy and information flow. Flow means change. Information is a pattern of energy that stands for something. Like if I say ocean, the word ocean is not the ocean right out here. 
it's actually a word. And a word represents the thing itself. It's a representation, a representation. And so a representation is an energy pattern with symbolic value. It symbolizes something. Okay. The long story made incredibly short is that the system of mind that I'm going to suggest to you is at the heart of mindfulness is actually rarely talked about, but has to do with the mathematical quality of something called a complex system. And we're not, we don't have time right here to get into it. You can do, you know, it sounds true. I have a wonderful program you can get involved in where we do a, a deep dive into systems in the mind or the Mindsight Institute or the, any of the books or the last book, Aware, which will come out soon, which takes you on a deep discussion of meditation and and the way in which the complex system of the mind overlaps. So there's lots to get into it. Here, let me just give you the take-home point. The take-home point is that the system of mind, of energy and information flow that's within and between, has features that make it meet the criteria of a complex system. Now, that doesn't mean it's complicated. So, so people freak out and say, oh, my God, I want life to be simpler. Don't give me complexity. Actually, complexity is incredibly simple. So here's how it goes. If you're a, an open, chaos-capable, nonlinear system, nonlinear means small input can lead to large and unpredictable results or very difficult to predict results. What a complex system has in our universe is something called emergence. Emergence means the stuff of the system, like if it were a cloud, water molecules and air molecules, I'll suggest to you for a human life, for a human mind, it's energy and information flow. That stuff interacts with itself, and in the interaction, something emerges from that. That's all that emergence means. It is a mathematical statement, not just a feel-good California term. It's actually math. So what I want to suggest to you is that the within and between of the mind is the system that is energy and information flow, and that these three facets, at least, are likely emergent processes arising as qualities of a complex system. And one of the emergent phenomena that mathematics describes is called self-organization. And self-organization is, again, a mathematical term. And what it means is totally counterintuitive. And it's probably why people don't talk about it much. But it goes like this. Arising from the interaction of the elements of the system is an emergent property. We know that. But one of those emergent properties is called self-organization. And it turns back and regulates the very stuff from which it arose, which, of course, doesn't make any sense, does it? How can you now regulate the very birthplace of your beginning that then is regulated by your own becoming? So it's counterintuitive, but it's mathematically established in our universe to exist. It's why clouds don't line up in a straight line, or it's, not, it's why they're not chaotic in their distribution. They go in these beautiful shapes. What I want to suggest to you is that here's a definition as the fourth facet, that the mind, beyond subjective experience, consciousness, and even information processing, is the, here it is, the embodied and relational emergent self-organizing process that is regulating energy and information flow 
within us, so including the brain and the body, and between us, meaning our relationships with other people and the planet. Now, when you define the mind like that, and that's a definition that we offer, you actually can take the next question and say, what is a healthy mind? And when you ask the question, what is optimal self-organization arising from, it arises from a very basic process that we're going to name integration, the differentiation of parts and their linkage. So integration in our way, not the way mathematics would use that term, but the way we're going to use the term integration is how mathematics says you optimize self-organization, which was differentiating and linking. When you optimize self-organization, you create harmony. You create five qualities that spell the word faces, flexible, adaptive, F, A, C is coherent, which means resilient over time, E is energized, which means having a sense of vitality, and S is stable. Faces, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable, is the mathematically determined quality of the self-organization of a system that is using integration, the linkage of differentiated parts, as it flows across what we can call clock time, the time. Now, I say all that because I believe mindfulness is a way of being integrated. That when you're not integrated, you go to either chaos or rigidity, which are the way of describing human suffering. It's like a river. And when you leave the central flow of harmony, you can go into one bank, which is chaos, the other bank, which is rigidity. So for me, new to the mindfulness world, I came with a notion that integration was the basis of health, based on everything we just said. And it turns out that you can demonstrate over the last 25 years since that proposal was first made that every study of the brain of people with suffering had impaired integration. And the major study done on the brain for happiness and well-being shows the best predictor of well-being is how integrated you are. It's described as how interconnected the connectome is. So, so far, there's a ton of support for the notion that integration is the basis of well-being. Well, with that being a background, when I first learned by accident about mindfulness and actually met Jack uh, Cornfield and, you know, we started a professional relationship and a friendship, we, we, it, what was so exciting about it was I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I knew zero about meditation and was, in fact, uh, studying, you know, parent-child relationships called attachment. And some other people who were researchers in mindfulness said, I didn't know what I was talking about because I was supporting attachment. And in Buddhist meditation, you're supposed to get rid of attachment, which confused me. Um, but I found out they were talking about clinging to fixed ideas. And yes, you don't want to cling to rigid ideas. That's a form of suffering. Um, but the kind of attachment I was studying was about relational connection and love, which having now taught with the Dalai Lama, I can tell you he absolutely believes in. In fact, compassion is all about secure attachment. So it's just a linguistic overlap, unfortunately, of these two independent fields. So that being said, what my experience with mindfulness meditation and compassion training are all about is they are harnessing the power of neuroplasticity with the following basic rule of neuroplasticity, which is just a phrase I coined to help me remember, like, well, what's going on here? And here's how it goes. 
where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. So let's go over that again. Where attention goes, what attention is, and this is what you're teaching your students to do, is the directional guiding of energy and information flow. Sometimes it's into awareness and we call it focal attention. And sometimes it's not an awareness and we call it non-focal attention. But any kind of attention is the guiding of the directionality of energy and information flow. If I say, you know, focus on your breath. As a teacher, you'd be taking the sensation of the breath and filling awareness with it. That's great. So that's attention, right? So where attention goes, neural firing flows. You're literally getting the brain to be activated in a certain way. Neural firing is the activation of neurons. And for at least one part of the mind, the brain is important. It's part of the embodied mechanism of energy and information flow. But here's the secret sauce. Where neural firing goes, neural connection grows. So just you know, an hour ago, I was just with one of our world's leading researchers on uh, mindfulness studies. Amishi Jha is here teaching with me, along with Dr. Keltner and Shauna Shapiro, four science people teaching about mindfulness. And next week, actually, Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman-Cornfield will be coming here. We'll be teaching together, too. And what's exciting about uh, all of this, but just talk about what Amishi said, is that you can show that neuroplastic changes are induced by the mindfulness practices you teach. And the way to remember this is when you create a state of neural firing with intentionality that is specifically harnessing um, particular circuitry, that state of firing will become a trait in a person's life because of neuroplasticity. A trait would be a baseline way of being that doesn't have to be cultivated on purpose. It's just your baseline. So as Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman wrote in their book, Altered Traits, you have this process whereby meditative practices like the ones you're going to teach as mindfulness facilitators, mindfulness teachers, you're going to teach people that where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. And here's what you can say in your elevator speech to either your um, partners who don't believe in what you're doing or your mother-in-law or father-in-law or whatever. Anyone doesn't believe this is what you say. You know, these practices of mindfulness training, compassion training, and, you know, some people put compassion training under the term mindfulness. Some people separate them. So just to be complete and respect everybody, I mean, just including that, and we'll just call it mind training. So mind training that includes the three pillars that have been identified as foundational. There are probably other pillars too that Tanya Singer is now exploring in her beautiful work in Germany. But let's just stick with the basic three here and we we'll can add more as we go along in our, our learning together. One is focused attention. The second is open awareness. And the third is I call kind intention. And so you're cultivating a kind of attention, which is focused moving back when you get distracted, for example, and sustaining attention. Open awareness is not identifying with the object of awareness, but resting in the spaciousness of awareness. And kind intention is a term that I use because it's more than just compassion. Of course, people call it loving kindness. Um, so we have the kindness there, but 
it's more than just compassion training because you're also teaching about empathic joy. So empathy and compassion, that's a whole other discussion with the distinction, but let's just say it here, with the word kindness, you actually get the whole shebang there, which is great. You're getting compassion, you're getting kindness, you're getting lovingness, you're getting caring, you're getting concern, you're getting empathy, you're getting the whole thing. It's kind regard, right? It's just like Jack and Trudy and Ram Dass talk about loving awareness, or Shauna Shapiro talks about kind attention. So this is training intention. Those are three basic mental processes, attention, awareness, and intention. And the three pillars when you train them, this is what the research generally shows in terms of the brain's integrative functioning. You're growing the hippocampus, which links widely separated areas to each other. You're growing the corpus callosum, which links the differentiated left and right hemispheres to each other. You're growing the prefrontal region, which links widely separated areas to each other. And you're making what's called the connectome more interconnected. These are the more subtly differentiated areas and how they're linked. Here's the secret of the whole thing. Regulation of attention, emotion, affect, mood, thought, behavior, morality, relationality, all those things we sometimes call, and I don't like the term, but it's called self-regulation because I think the word self should not be ascribed to the skin and case body, but that's a whole other discussion. But let's just talk about executive functions. Those executive functions are all based on integration. So regulation requires integration of the brain, and your teaching is going to teach your practitioners how to cultivate integration in their brain. And integration, as we saw, is not only the base of regulation, it's the base of well-being. So that's awesome. That's integrative and fantastic. The other thing that happens, and you know, when I sent out this book, Aware, which summarizes all this stuff and teaches you how to do something we'll talk about in a moment, you know, when I send it out, for review from the scientists, you know, one of them wrote me back, she said, yeah, it's all accurate. You know, you, what do you do? You reduce stress and reduce the cortisol levels. You optimize cardiovascular risk functions. When I say it, you're, when you're doing the three pillar mind training practices. So your cardiovascular, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, um, cholesterol levels are improved. Your um, stress levels, including stress hormone are, are reduced. Um, you are actually improving your immune system function so you fight off infectious illnesses. You're reducing inflammation by altering the non-DNA molecules that sit on top of the DNA called epigenetic regulators. I mean, if you told me this 20 years ago, I would say, oh, come on, you're exaggerating. But all these have been published in the most prestigious peer-reviewed journals that exist. Um, so you optimize the reduction of inflammation. And now you also optimize the level of an enzyme that repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes called telomerase. So when I sent it to a colleague, Alyssa Eppel, she wrote me back when she read Aware. She said, oh, I like the book. It's great. You know, and everything is accurate, but you left one thing out. And I said, what? Because I put, you know, optimizes telomerase levels. It repairs the ends of your chromosomes, maintains them so that your, six, your cells don't get sick and, and die. And she goes, you didn't say it slows aging. So I wrote back to her. I said, well, it hasn't gone to the printer yet, but can I really say it slows aging? She said, absolutely. This is like the world's expert on aging who also you know, wrote this wonderful book called The Telomere Effect with Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the telomere system. So we're talking about hardcore 
hard-won scientific findings that you now have at your fingertips. Integrate the brain, improve all the physiological molecular mechanisms of health with your mind. So what I'm going to introduce you now is a practice that actually combines all three pillars into one practice. And I was so honored when Tara Brock wrote an endorsement for the Aware book, which is the guide to how to do what's called the Wheel of Awareness that Jack and I have been going around teaching together, and he's been there when we've done the wheel. Um, and this practice has all three of the pillars, so in one unit you get it. But the way this practice began, I'll just give you the very brief background, was from combining two scientific ideas. You've heard both of them. Well, you've really heard one of them, actually. One is integration is health. So that's one. But the second was, as a therapist, I was curious why consciousness was needed for therapy. And as an attachment researcher, I was really curious why consciousness was needed in parenting well. As a dad, I was also wondering about that. And then when I started teaching teachers, I noticed consciousness was needed for teaching in a classroom, K through 12, for example, you have to have your students conscious. So why for intentional growth and development, why for intentional change do we need consciousness? So what I decided to try with my patients, the people I was working with in therapy, was a process of integrating consciousness. And that may sound weird, and it certainly sounded weird to my patients, so let me try to describe it to you. There was a table, there is a table in my office, which has a central hub and an outer rim. So if you can picture that, you can see it. Or if you have you know, any, the, any of the books I've written recently, you'll see this wheel. And instead of calling it a table of awareness, we call it a wheel of awareness, because then we can use the common metaphor of a hub as the central part, the rim as the outer part, and a spoke connecting the hub to the rim. So metaphorically, this is like a map of the mind. And I'm going to tell you this practice because, you know, I did it with my patients. They started reducing anxiety, reducing mild to moderate depression, reducing trauma symptoms, and they found it very helpful in dealing with stress. They found it helpful when they were facing illnesses of others or themselves. So it was very useful. So then when I saw this improvement, I started to teach it to my students who were therapists. And they found it useful themselves and for their clients. So then I decided to try teaching in workshops. So since I'm a scientist, I decided to record all those workshops. And I did it systematically with 10,000 people in workshops, recorded when people took the microphone. Not everyone took the microphone, but for people who did, recorded the results, did it all around the planet, and found that no matter what a person's background, whether they had never meditated before, like Jack and I were once teaching in Seattle and a Microsoft just retired seven-year-old engineer did the wheel and had these huge effects. Or in Asia, when I've done it, and I've had heads of monasteries do the practice, the results are quite similar. So that's really fascinating. And now, having done it on much more than 10,000 people, um, it's just really, really useful to have this simple model of how to integrate consciousness. So what do I mean by that? Consciousness can be simply defined as the subjective experience of knowing and that which is known. So if I say to you, hello, you know I said hello, but then there's also the sound of hello. So we could at least differentiate, so we're beginning, anything that's going to be integrated needs to be differentiated and linked, 
So we'll begin with the differentiation of the knowing from the known. And visually, you could place the knowing in the hub and the knowns on the rim. You then would take a metaphoric spoke, so a line going from that hub to the rim, and we'll make that the spoke of attention. And we systematically differentiate the elements of the rim from each other and from the hub. And then we link them with the movement of the spoke around. And that's the way you integrate consciousness. And with that simple frame, back in the late 90s, I started using this table as a way of just helping people, to help them with the things they were facing. And it was as if their awareness had been like the size of an espresso cup. And so when life was dishing out this tablespoon of challenge of salt, it was just too salty to drink. But if we could get them to expand the hub of their wheel by gaining access to it, then it was as if we made that container like 100 gallons. And then what would happen is life would hand out that tablespoon of salt. It would get diluted in this much bigger hub of their wheel, and they could drink the water of life. And that was the way I was thinking about it. I didn't really know much more about it than that, but people started getting better with these expanded containers of awareness. So then the question is, how do you do this practice? Well, if you picture the rim and you place four lines around the rim to indicate four segments of the rim, the first segment would be taking in energy patterns from the world outside the body. So we use the body as a reference. So when we say the term outside, we mean outside the skin encased body. So what would that be? Sound for hearing, light for seeing. You know, it's basically chemical energy for smelling and tasting. And then pressure, the energy of pressure for touch, tactile sensations. You then move the spoke over to the second segment of the rim. And there you explore the interior signals of the body. What are these? These are energy and information flow coming from the muscles and bones throughout the whole body, coming from the genitals, from the intestines, from the respiratory system, from the heart. And you bring this, what are called interoceptive signals, up into awareness. So you hold in awareness these sensations of the body. So that's the second segment. Then you move the spoke over to the third segment, and then you explore mental activities like emotions, thoughts, memories. And of course, these become influenced by bodily states and what comes in from the outside world. These are all themselves integrated, but you're differentiating them one by one. And here in this moment, by good fortune, the first two segments were focused attention, one by one, singular, let it go, go to the next thing, hearing, seeing, etc. But now with the third segment, you're doing open awareness training, it turns out where you're saying, bring it on. Any kind of mental activity could come in and you could modify this to and do the whole rim as well. But here you're doing open awareness training. Then you move the spoke of attention over to the fourth and final segment, which is our sense of relationality to other people on the planet. And here you could say, what's the energy pattern coming in? Maybe the energy pattern of mental activities could be thought to be brain and the head activities. That could very well be. What is the relationality when we feel connected to each other and to the whole planet? That's what I discussed in the Aware book, so we won't talk about it here, but it's likely some pattern of energy um, that's, that's being felt or at least constructed. And then in going through this, for some reason, 
I decided to try something with my patients that now I do in an advanced practice, sometimes just in workshops like we did here at Esalen, where you bend the spoke of attention around. Or for some people, they prefer the image of retracting it or just keeping it in the hub or no spoke at all and just experiencing hub and hub awareness of awareness. And this is where we get these huge transformations where people feel this sense of expansiveness, loss of time, this feeling of being connected to everything. Some describe God, some describe love, joy, tranquility, peace. And this has happened so often, country after country after country. In fact, some of the faculty who we've been teaching together came out to me, they said, we didn't think it was going to happen again, but there it happened again, at Esalen again, but it happens every workshop. And so what I'll leave you with in the last five minutes of this presentation that we'll open up for Q&A is the following um, notion. For me, what became really a burning question was not just the awe that the wheel was helping people, which was just fantastic as a person who's in the world of trying to connect with people and help them. That was great. But as a scientist, I also wanted to know what actually is the wheel telling us about the nature of awareness? So you'll see in you know, the book Aware, you know, this step-by-step -step discussion of what now I'm going to say in such a condensed form that it may seem too abstract to understand. But with my daughter's help, where she, she's an artist, she did the drawings in the book, you'll see this step-by-step -step discussion here. But if the proposal that the mind is an emergent property of energy is true, and it might be wrong, but if it's true, and so far it seems to be supported by the research, but if that's true, then if you turn to the science of energy, you might find some illuminating things even beyond the brain studies, which basically show the more integrated the brain is, the more consciousness arises. And that's basically a brief summary of the brain findings. For me, that wasn't enough, so I needed to go to the physicists who are the scientific experts in energy. And what the physicists say, ultimately, is that energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. Energy, according to certain quantum physicists, is the movement from possibility to actuality, from what's called a sea of potential or quantum vacuum to an actuality. So what I did was I took the 10,000 person study of the Wheel of Awareness and the findings there, mapped it onto the physicist's view of energy to come up with a proposal that could be completely wrong or it could be partially right or it could be right. And you can try it out for yourself. But it goes like this, that when we have a thought or a memory or an emotion, it's what on a graph would look like a peak of actualization. Something's become 100%. I think I'm at the ocean. That's a thought. Just beneath the peak, I'm thinking or emoting or remembering. But I can also come even further down to a place of what's called elevated probability, like if I'm only going to say things related to ocean. Maybe there are 100 words I'm going to say instead of the millions of words I might say to you. So that space we're going to call a plateau. When you go all the way down to full potentiality, you reach what the quantum physicists call a quantum vacuum or sea of potential. On this graph, when you put three dimensions onto it, it's a plane, and we're going to call it the plane of possibility. And what I think happens is that the hub 
of the wheel of awareness, where the knowing of awareness is, represents when energy is moved into this plane of possibility. And it's the formless source of all form. And what you get in that spacious place is not only for whatever reason, we don't know why, the experience of being aware of knowing, but you also have a pause before you act on impulses. You have the source of other options rest there. And finally, the thing that's absolutely amazing in having conversations with people in these workshops, and I'm so excited to see how when people read the book, we can dive more deeply into this, is that your plane and my plane are the same because infinity is infinity. So when you do your work teaching mindfulness practices, mind training that includes focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention training, I think what you're doing is you're enabling people to have this much bigger container of awareness than the espresso cup, this 100-gallon container you're building, because you're giving them the skill of dropping energy out of its sometimes fixed plateaus that imprison us as consciousness of filters of consciousness that limit us with only certain peaks that arise. So we have certain beliefs about ourselves being separate and that kind of thing. And you free the person up from those repeating peaks and plateaus, which can be the source of chaos and rigidity. And you drop down into the plane and in the plane of possibility, we find our linkage. And as you go doing the work you do, you're giving people the freedom from what some would call the Newtonian classical view of our separateness down into what's really a quantum state of our deep interconnectedness. And this opportunity to free people up from the illusion of our separateness is something I think that is in the classic Buddhist teachings. It's in all the world's religious teachings. It's actually a teaching of quantum physics. I went to a quantum physics think tank and the first slide said, quantum physics has demonstrated the interconnected nature of reality. The real question is what's wrong with the human brain that people don't accept that? And that's the default mode. That's exactly the problem we get into. So you are doing this incredible service to the human journey to not only give people relief from their suffering and reduce their you know, stress and have them deal with all sorts of things in life so they expand their container, beautiful, but it's also a deep pathway where collectively we can realize our common ground across racial divides, religious divides, national divides, gendered and non-gender issue divides, all these ways we find uh, the in-group, out-group distinction is intensified and we other each other. When you drop into the plane of possibility, it's like Rumi's poem, you know, that says, there's a field beyond wrongdoing and right doing, and I'll meet you there. And that is what I believe you're helping people do, to find the plane of possibility that is that field of our common ground. So thank you very much for listening. I know that's a condensed summary of everything. There's so much to share with individual cases that we can talk about that you're having or that I explore in the Aware Book. And I look forward to having our Q&A now. And Steve, thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. Before we get too far in, I want to just make sure we um, touch on something you mentioned earlier to maybe answer any questions that have come up that, um, you know, I'm wondering if you can share the distinction that you make between mindfulness uh, practices and compassion practices, just so we understand that, uh, where you're coming from with that. 
Yes, absolutely. So I was at a meeting recently with um, leaders in our field of, um, of mindfulness and compassion training. And, um, and I was finishing up the book Aware. And I had wanted, just for simplicity, to call all these practices compassion training and mindfulness training, you know, um, just call it all mindfulness training. And half the group said, of course, you can call it mindfulness training because that's what mindfulness is, you know, loving awareness and stuff. And then other members of this esteemed collective group of people said, absolutely not. Compassion training is not at all a part of mindfulness training. So that would be an error if you put compassion training under mindfulness training. So then we had a, I, I was struggling because, you know, I'm sort of, you know, just sort of a neutral party here. So I just said, okay, well, then how about if we use the term mind training and just indicate the three pillars are focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention? And everybody agreed that that was fine. So, so that's why if you're going to use, I just call it mind training. But if you're going to use the term mindfulness, just be aware that some esteemed leaders in the field believe that compassion training is fundamental to mindfulness training. And others who are researchers in the field say that that is a, a categorical error, that it is not. And, and for them to do research on mindfulness, they need to distinguish basically what they would consider just attention training from uh, loving kindness. It's, you know, if you look at the papers that came out in the last six months from Tanya Singer, they're really beautifully written, instructive statements about how important it is to just say, you know, what are we really focusing attention on and not worried about the semantics so much, but just say, what do we know is actually helpful for people? And I would really review those studies and, um, and honor just uh, saying a word. So a phrase like mind training just brings both of those camps that actually don't agree. It, 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 they both concur with that statement. So that's why, since I'm friends with all these people, um, you know, I can I, I use that term as uh, an embracing term for the different perspectives without it annoying anybody. Thank you for does that. Make sense? It does. Yeah. Thanks for help clarifying that and making sure we can spell that out. Um, okay, so we've got a couple questions in coming in from yeah, our audience yeah. that I'll share with you. Um, the first question is uh, comes in search of the statement. I love the fact that what we're doing in teaching mindfulness is that we're helping our students' brain integrate as well as helping open to all the psychological and physical benefits that research suggests are available to us. But I'm afraid I will not be able to come remotely close to your skill in describing it. What do you feel would be the most watered down and digestible pieces of this idea that we could share with our students? Yeah, I think if you get the book aware, I spent a long time taking the 40 minutes you just said and turning it into digestible pieces that the purpose of it is exactly what the question is that that's being asked is asking digestible pieces that when you digest it as a teacher it will come naturally to you so you'll see drawings you know where i've had a number of people you know review the book who've never meditated before you know or have trouble with meditation and they find the visual cues that that are there Matt, my daughter maddie's drawings really accessible to actually have the mind be visible is like whoa so she, so she did a great job with that and and so and the ideas then are are segment by segment um digestible pieces that when put together 
show you how to do the three pillar training. Um, and then you see how to do the wheel of awareness training. So, I mean, literally the aware book would be your go-to place to say, how do I, as a teacher, learn to do the teaching of this? And that you'll see um, the teaching moments there. And, you know, I'm, I am a teacher and I do teach this stuff. So you'll see it in book form in a way that I think will be readily accessible to you. Anne's question is, are you doing any work researching or studying Qigong? The energy you describe sounds a lot like Qi as described by Qigong masters. It's so funny, Anne, that you mentioned that, you know, there's a, a Qigong teacher here and he and I had a long lunch uh, at the 1440 Center a couple uh, months ago. Uh, and his teacher actually was here at Esalen last year. Um, and um, so, yes, yeah, I think the energy we're talking about is probably a fundamental energy that happens throughout the body uh, in Qigong. I, I do Qigong regularly. If you do our, we have a, an online program and in there I teach a, uh, a, a form of uh, mindful movement, if you will, integrative movement that embraces nine domains of integration in Qigong inspired movements and also with Tai Chi. And so I, I am a hundred percent with you. I think energy is energy and we need to learn to work it in different ways, um, embodying it and relationally having resonance with each other. So I'm with you all, all the way. Absolutely. And Qigong of course is considered one of the basic mindfulness practices and Qigong I think is profoundly integrative, you know, that's ultimately what I think compassion training and mindfulness training share in common is they're integrative practices. So for me, you know, what this mind training comes down to is integration. And what are you integrating energy flow, whether you're doing it with Qigong or, you know, focusing attention on the breath or all these things, you can show how ultimately they're profoundly integrated in the state that's created and then integrated in the trait that's created. One part of that is how we're more empathic and compassionate with each other, so relationally integrated. But the other is the brain literally grows integrative circuits. Dan, this person just uh, wrote in, um, what are the cues to brain integration, to the process of brain integration? You know, to maybe extrapolate a little bit more of that. Are there, are there things that you can help point students to or that you see as evidence of uh, this brain integration occurring? Yeah, I mean, so to start with the science of where I come off saying these things, if you look at various studies of both structural and functional linking of differentiated parts, which we're using the word integration for that, um, again, hippocampus, corpus callosum, and prefrontal cortex, and uh, the interconnected connectome, that would be the brain studies that would support that. But I think you're asking in moment-to-moment work, how can someone know what's going on? There are nine functions of integration that are easy to assess, and they're all nine of them. When I first met John Kabat-Zinn, you know, I didn't know anything about meditation or anything, and I said, look, here are nine functions of the integrative areas of the brain, and when I reviewed Richie Davidson and your studies, it seems like that seems to be what mindfulness is creating, and eight of those nine are actually outcomes of secure parent-child attachment. I don't know what's going on, but we've got mindfulness meditation in the MBSR tradition. We have secure attachment in the attachment research tradition, and we have integration in the brain. 
And so when I wrote a book called The Mindful Brain, it was like saying, wow, that's weird. What's going on? And here's, here's those nine functions. And I haven't said them in a long time. So let me, hopefully I can remember all nine. One is the capacity to um, basically uh, be aware of the body's signals and to regulate the body. So body regulation. So you see a person, let's say they're using their heart rate variability monitor. They can show more capacity to regulate the relationship with the heart and the head. And that would be a way you can measure if you wanted a gadget. But people can feel themselves calming down. And so body regulation is number one. Number two is something you call attuned communication, the ability to tune into your internal state called introception, but also tune into the internal state of someone else. So that's very important. So attuned communication. Number three is the capacity for something that I call response flexibility. And that just means being able to pause before you respond. So you flexibly respond. That's why I made up that term. Um, and you can see this when people like, you know, I have a client I'm working with now, you know, and what that client says is now he can, you know, pause before he acts. So that would be a sign of integration in the brain. Um, you have all sorts of other ones. I don't know if you want me to go through all of them, but it's the ability of autonoetic consciousness, which is where you, you link past, present and future to each other. Uh, that's a very important function. You have the capacity to, um, and now I'm, I'm going to have some naming moments as I go through the rest. But basically, those are, the, those are the first four that happen. You can have an autobiographical narrative that's built from that autonoetic consciousness and other things. Morality is one, uh, the ability to have uh, insight into yourself, the ability to actually, and I'm not naming these as well as I can, but you also can um, have what's called theory of mind or mind sight. So you see the mind of another person. So if you're looking for a positive outcome in your training, ideally, you would see morality built into things. So people often say, what's the relation between mindfulness and ethics? And there's a lot of reason to believe they're fundamentally interwoven when you look at these nine prefrontal functions, these integrative functions. And I list them in uh, the mindful brain, but there's so much more research that's come out since then. Um, you know, you can see them in other publications as well. But, but these are the functions you would look for. Thank you, Dan. I've got two more questions I want to try to get in before we're at the top of our hour here. Yeah. The first one centers Absolutely. is about kids. Uh, this program partici uh, participant writes, I work a lot with kids and preteens and feel there is value in what you're sharing here in helping them understand their experience. Have you worked or how would you work uh, or alter your teachings with working with younger populations? Yeah, great. Thank you for the question. Let's say briefly that with adolescence in the aware book, you'll see the story of Jonathan, also summarized in a book called Mindsight. And um, for adolescence, he was 16. In the brainstorm book, there are great pages of the brainstorm book that teach you exactly how to teach the wheel of awareness to adolescents. So that's there. In the book called Whole Brain Child, which I wrote with Tina Payne Bryson, my colleague, we have a story that I talk about in the aware book of a, uh, actually, no, this story didn't make it in there, but it teaches you how to use the wheel of awareness in young children. So I'll tell you very briefly, Billy was a, a five-year-old kid and he got expelled from one preschool for beating somebody up, got transferred from new school. The teacher, Mrs. Smith, she uses whole brain child, teaches the wheel to everybody. She taught it to Billy just as a drawing, not as a meditation. The next day, Billy comes in and says, Mrs. Smith, give me a break. 
I'm on the yard. Joey took my blocks. I'm about to hit him. I'm lost on my rim. I need to get back to my hub. And he's five. And we get reports from kindergarten like that. So the whole brain child would actually has sections for how do you talk to kids about the wheel and teach it to them? Because you're absolutely right. How we speak at, at different ages, you have to make it developmentally appropriate. So brainstorm and whole brain child would teach you about the wheel and how to teach it to younger people. Thanks, Dan. Our, our last question tonight. And I love this question because it's a bit of a, a meta question. It's a pedagogical question. Um, you've made an amazing career yes. translating the complexity of neurobiology to diverse audiences. Uh, aside from the acumen you. in neurobiology, you clearly have a skill as a quote-unquote translator. What do you feel has made this possible, or how do you approach sharing complex issues with diverse audiences? Wow, that's a beautiful question. Um, Steve, how many hours do we have for me to answer that? <laughs> Five minutes. I'll try. What's your clock? My clock says I have five minutes, but it might be up. Yeah, that, um, about five minutes, but go ahead. Please take take the time you okay. need. So thank, first of all, thank you for the question. And it is a pedagogical question. And I do teach a lot of teachers, not only teachers of meditation, but, you know, K through 12 teachers. And and here's what, here's what I'll say to you about that very kind question. So thank you for your kind reflections on it. And I do think it's a really important question regarding you know, how we convey these important things. So the first thing I'll just say in terms of feelings and intentions, you know, and maybe you feel this way too and why you've come to Tara and, and Jack's um, trainings. You know, I feel like the world is in a deep crisis. I mean, for the individual, of course, anxiety levels are rising, depression levels are rising, suicide levels are rising. Um, not just in adults, but in youth. So we're, in contemporary culture, we're in a crisis. When you look at the whole planet, we're in a crisis. So there's a lot of serious stuff happening. So what we need to do to, um, I think, try to move things in a positive direction is embrace the reality of something called cultural evolution. And cultural evolution happens much more quickly than genetic evolution. They're both biological, of course, because relationships are biology, but cultural evolution is shaped by our relationships. So I guess what I would say to, to address the second part of your question, you know, about like what's the motivation and, and, and then also maybe what you can do about that is what I found my, in my own personal life to be really helpful is to always honor subjective experience and to stay with there. So when I was in training in medical school, and I talk about this in a book called Mind, really addresses your question, you know, um, it didn't feel right. The, the lack of empathy and compassion just felt wrong. So I dropped out of school and I had to find my own way and made up this word mindsight. And that felt right, that we saw each other's minds and that was really important. And then when I went through psychiatry training and research training, no one was talking about the mind and that seemed wrong. So then it felt wrong. So I was motivated to try to define the mind. And once I could define the mind, I could find a way to bring people into a discussion that was collaborative and respectful. So in terms of synthesizing different sciences, you know, it was just like driven out of desperation and need, you know. But then once it was grounded in this energy and information system, then everything else began to fall into place. And so when I had these interns working with me to revise my first text with Developing Mind, we stay at the ground level. So when I first learned about meditation, for example, I stayed with energy and information flow. I stayed with integration. 
I'd already been doing the wheel practice, so I sort of kept that quiet. And some of the teachers said, oh, that's not the way it works. And that sounds ridiculous. And so I didn't do it. I mean, you know, so I just left it apart. But anyway, but, but that turned out to be actually a useful practice. So I kept on going because it felt right and my patients felt right with it. And I think, I think what we can do, you and me and all of us, is, and this, this is really what drives me every morning when I wake up, is I think we've made a fundamental problem in our culture where we have a category that is built into a four-letter word we use that is S-E-L-F, self. And the, the, the brain in our head makes categories of energy patterns that come in, and then we name them to reinforce the category. And when we define the self by the skin, or you know, even worse, by just the skull, and science does this all the time, unfortunately, even by accident, when we don't mean it, you know, we're reinforcing, I think, a toxic lie. So part of the journey is to go from just a me to also a we in an integrated way. And the thing I teach kids in schools and in you know, high schools and middle schools and all these places is the idea that you are not just the wax of your candle. You're not just a me. You are also the we. You're the flame. You know? And I, I summarize that with me plus we equals we. And I say to them, I said, when you go out in the world, when you realize you're a we, that you are the light beyond the wax alone, and then the plane of possibility, this hub of the wheel gets you there. When kids start to realize that, they realize their task in life is to go out and light up each other's wicks to make this a brighter world, and no one owns the light, and all of us can share as we create a kinder and more compassionate lit up world. And that's something I'm so honored to be on the journey with you to try to create. And on those beautiful words, we'll conclude our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program broadcast. Dan, thank you so much for being with us tonight and for all your insight and and your presence. Steve, thank you so much. And thank you all for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to all of you who are joining us. Uh, Your participation makes these sessions so much more rich and, uh, and, and meaningful. For Sounds True, I'm Steve Lassard. Thanks for being with us.